Welcome to Northern Latitudes. I'm Bill Alt. Today we're venturing into the world of the majestic polar bear and joining us, Professor Andrew DeRoche from the University of Alberta, a leading expert on polar bear ecology. My name is Andrew DeRoche. I'm a professor of biological sciences at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. I've been studying polar bears across the Arctic for a little over 40 years now, mainly in Canada right now, but uh, for seven years I was a polar bear research scientist for the government of Norway working in Svalbard. I work on a diversity of topics from behavior to ecology to population dynamics, and uh, if it's about polar bears, I'm interested in it. (laughs) You said you've been doing this for over 40 years. Do you remember the first time you saw, saw a polar bear and what it was like to see one? I do. It was uh, 1984 on the shores of Hudson Bay. I'd just come off of a job working on grizzly bears on the west coast of British Columbia. I'm an accidental academic, accidental polar bear scientist. I I could have studied any species, but I I, I was intrigued by bears like many people. And uh, up on the shores of Hudson Bay, and next thing you know, I'm sitting next to a immobilized polar bear. And pretty impressed by just how big those animals are. It's uh, they're they're inspiring. They're they're more inspiring when they're not drugged than they are when they're drugged. You know, then they're just kind of this big sort of inanimate ob- object. But um, you're nonetheless just impressed by the the size of them, the size of the paws, the size of their head, the sharpness of their claws. Um, they're they're just an impressive animal all around. And do you think that's one of the major reasons that we're so fascinated with these animals? You know, I think people like bears in general because I think we can see elements of ourselves in what bears do. So if you look at the terrestrial bears, like in North America, the black bear and the grizzly bear, um, they occupy for a large part the same sort of ecological space that humans do. You know, they eat the same foods. I mean, uh, whether that's salmon on the West Coast or berries in the foothills or the mountains, it's there's an overlap there in what we eat. It's overlap in the places we like to be as well. I mean, typically both those bears live in the valley bottoms. Um, now, from a polar bear perspective, of course, for northern people, they overlap a lot in what they want to eat as well. And, and for a lot of uh, Inuit in the Canadian Arctic, seals were what made it possible for them to persist in those areas. And that's certainly what makes it possible for polar bears to persist as well. Now, you made the distinction there between terrestrial bears and the polar bear, which the Latin name which is Ursus Maritimus, the bear of the sea, if I'm correct. But how much time does a polar bear actually spend on land? Uh, Given their choice, they'd never come on land. So if we roll back to the 1980s when I first started studying polar bears, I've worked up uh, in northwestern Canada in the Beaufort Sea, which borders with Alaska. And we had bears in that population back then that were born in maternity dens on the sea ice, lived their whole life out on the ice and died out there. They would never have come ashore. Uh, Now that situation has changed now because the sea ice has changed. And of course, that doesn't apply to most populations of bears because they're born on land in uh, terrestrial den areas. But given their choice, the bears will stay out on the ice as long as they can. And the amount of time that they come ashore really depends on the sea ice conditions. 
Uh, and we still have bears in the Canadian Arctic that really never come ashore. Uh, given their choice, they'll retreat northward with the sea ice, uh, or they'll find a fjord that has ice persisting well into late summer until the freeze-up starts. So it really varies a lot. They're, they're well adapted to going for long periods of time on land, um, but there's not much to eat in the Arctic on land for, for a polar bear. So when they're ashore, they're usually losing about a kilogram of body mass per day that they're not feeding. Yeah, how long would an average polar bear live in the Arctic? Like, well, in terms of lifespan, bears are living anywhere from between about 20 and 30 years. Uh, oh. an, an adult male is old once it's over 20 years. Uh, an adult female is really old once she's over about 24, 25 years. So there is some differences between the sexes. The males have a tough go of it. Um, and usually that's because they put a lot of their energy into trying to mate in those middle teen years and that can really uh, wear them down quite a bit so it's a it's a tough life being an old male polar bear what are some things that people like me wouldn't know about polar bears well i mean they do a lot of really neat things i mean uh, some of them are sort of behaviors um i i think that probably polar bears are what i would call a one-time learner if they figure out something that works, they will do it over and over again. And so one of the neat things this is, is that this results in a lot of personality in bears. And so what you find is that one individual is not like the next individual, which means that they can do different things to stay alive. And so we see some bears, for example, uh, walk along a stream full of Arctic char and pay no attention to them at all. It's just like they, they don't think there's anything there. Other bears, for some reason, have learned that Arctic char are catchable and edible. Uh, and they'll spend a lot of their summer in some parts of the Arctic trying to kill and catch them. Similarly, some polar bears determine that they can catch things like eider ducks that are sitting on the water, um, and they'll have a strategy for catching them and eating them, and they do it uh, fairly often. Other bears, it's um, just not interested, don't seem to have learned that behavior. And so how they get that is not quite clear. Is it culturally transmitted? Um, did I see another bear do it and learn to do it myself? Or did mom teach me how to do this? So that personality thing is really uh, an important component. And this is also why if you're in the Arctic and you, know, you can see 50, 60 bears over a couple of years walking around, but that 61st bear that you see might be doing something quite different. And all of a sudden that turns out to be the one that thinks you're a food item. Whereas all the 60 ones before that, they didn't care about seeing you at all. And so this is, gets into the individual behavior that's really quite interesting. So, so there's things like that, but there are other things. Um, the fact that, you know, this is a species that uh, we have pregnant females that uh, came ashore last summer in Hudson Bay. And about another month from now, they'll be going back onto the sea ice. But these are bears that will have spent almost eight months and they will have not eaten anything over that period. And they will have burned off well over 200 kilograms of body mass uh, to sustain themselves, to give birth to and rear their cubs. Their cubs are born really small. Uh, about 800 grams at birth, uh, like a size of a guinea pig. They have to rear them up to at least 10 kilos or so 
to get them viable to head back out onto the sea ice where she, the mother can start hunting again. But during that whole time as well, it's really, it, it's amazing. They're in this small little snow den. Uh, they don't move around very much. But over that period of time, they've managed to maintain almost all of their muscle mass and all of their bone mass. And yet, if you think about it from a human perspective, if we put somebody in a hospital bed for some weeks, very quickly, um, they're losing bone mass, they're losing muscle strength, and they, you know, humans do very poorly with those sorts of events. Yet, bears are able to do things physiologically that are so vastly different than many other species of mammals. And I read somewhere that the, the fur of the cubs is much different than the fur of the adults. Yeah, well, the, the fur of, of cubs, they're, they're like little fuzzballs. There's, there's no question. And it's, it's interesting. That's really seems to be an adaptation to keeping them warm in dry conditions. Uh, adult bears, when, and, and the cubs will grow out of that fur over the coming months, but their next coat of fur is much coarser and much more uh, associated with getting rid of water. The last thing you want to do when you're in the Arctic on a cold day is like be a fluffy cub, go through the water, and then try to dry out. They're like little sponges. And the mothers in the springtime are absolutely loath to take their cubs into the water. Late in the summer, it's okay to take your cub for a swim because it's not as cold. But if you, they take small cubs in, we know from research that's been done, become hypothermic. Um, they cool down incredibly fast and they can die if they get wet. So that fluffiness passes sort of right when that period when they leave the dens and then in the months afterward, they shift into a still a cub coat, but it's much more resistant to getting wet. And at the adult stage, uh, we can catch a polar bear. We can watch them swimming, diving, trying to get away from biologists and helicopters. <laughs> And, and it's, it's interesting because um, when you get down to those bears, if you put your fingers down to their fur, the, the skin is not wet. It's fairly water repellent. Uh, and there's a lot of oils on the fur. So whenever you see a polar bear in the springtime out on the ice, if they do go for a swim, the first thing they do is they get out, shake like a dog, walk over to a big snowbank, and then roll around in dry snow trying to get the water off their fur. So it's, uh, it is an important part of their insulation as small cubs and as adults as well. And I've seen pictures of polar bears and their fur does something funny. As a photographer, their fur does something funny with the light. Well, there, there's no pigment in it and it's very translucent. There was, people thought that, that there, it, the hairs are actually hollow. So right in the middle is a hollow uh, core. But for a while there, some people thought, oh, this, this fur must be fiber optic. And so that makes perfect sense that, the, you know, that's why they glow this weird light. And, it, and it's interesting. So a fiber optics engineer took some polar bear hair into his laboratory, tried to run light down the hair, and it went absolutely nowhere. It's not fiber optic at all, which was kind of sad because it's sort of <laughs> a nice story because if it was fiber optic, the sun would hit the fur go down to the skin, which is black, and then be oh, absorbed really? and keep the bears warm. So it was this beautiful just-so story. So they do have black skin. We don't really know why, um, but it was a nice story that just didn't turn out to be so. And, and I mean, if you actually think about it, 
polar bears would need to stay warm in the middle of winter, but it's 24 hours of darkness. So the idea of, of solar, you know, warming is a nice one, but we don't really know why it happens. And we don't really know why polar bears have black skin. They're born with pink skin that goes black, which is kind of cool. But the other thing is grizzly bears maintain pink skin throughout their life. So their closest relative does something quite different than polar bears. But there's a lot of differences between polar bears and their grizzly bear ancestor. Did polar bears evolve from a common ancestor with grizzlies or are they direct? They're direct uh, uh, ancestors. So that's, uh, it's not like there was another bear down below them that they split from. They split off of uh, the grizzly bears or brown bears, Ursus arctos. And the interesting thing is, of course, we can still have hybrids of these. And we had some uh, situations in the Canadian Arctic in the last uh, 10, 15 years of grizzly bears having expanded into the Arctic archipelago are now right on the edge of polar bear habitat. And we had some instances, it turns out we had several hybrids, but it turns out we think it was one female polar bear that mated with two different male grizzly bears at different times and produced these hybrids. The reason we know about these hybrids for the most part is because they were actually killed by Inuit hunters in the area. So it's kind of an interesting modern day occurrence of these hybrids. But we also know from going back through the genetics of polar bears that there were previous hybridization events that occurred in uh, Ireland during a cold period when polar bears would have been forced south out of the Arctic and down into lower latitudes when they would have bred with the Irish brown bear or grizzly bears there. And we also have evidence of a similar event happening off the coast of Alaska to the far south in what's called the ABC Islands, the Admiralty Island group down there. Uh, So again, it's one of the hard things when you look at sort of how old are polar bears as a species. It's a little bit clouded by these repeated hybridization events. And when that happens, it's, it muddies the water. But as a species, polar bears are probably at least half a million years old, but it could be much older than that. And what differences, besides the obvious ones of color and maybe fur, what are some of the other things that they've evolved to exist in the Arctic as opposed to a grizzly? Yeah, well, one of the things is if you go to the Arctic today, you can't find a grizzly bear anywhere because they're all in dens. So one of the things is, is they're almost like opposites in terms of their life history. So grizzly bears go to den in the Arctic about early November, and they don't come out until early May. So they're sleeping for seven months over winter. Um, and that's the period of time that polar bears actually make their living. So there's some very, very different life history characteristics between them. And it goes quite far. Some of it's structural. Grizzly bears typically have larger litter sizes. Two or three is common for a grizzly bear. One or two is the most common for polar bear. And then in response to that, grizzly bears typically have six mammary glands. Polar bears typically have four mammary glands. And that's sort of the mammalian pattern. You have twice as many uh, mammary glands as you do offspring. And so polar bears, for the most part, have lost a pair of mammae that are down between their hind legs, whereas grizzly bears keep those ones. And again, so there's changes like that that are structural. Uh, There's changes in the claws, which are really prominent. Uh, Grizzly bears sort of have these long finger-like claws that are great for excavation, 
turning over rocks, digging up roots, things like that, small mammals, digging them out of the ground. Uh, Whereas polar bears have these much more cat-like curved claws. They're not retractable, but they're incredibly sharp, which is, of course, critical for catching things like seals that are really slippery and don't want to be caught. The other thing is polar bears have a lot more hair on their feet, on the soles of their feet as well, which is, of course, aids in traction, and it also aids in keeping your feet warm. Then there are differences in the skull as well. The skull of polar bears is more elongated, and we think that's an adaptation to pre-warming of air coming into the lungs. So you have that longer rostrum, out the muzzle out front, and there's all sorts of ways that animals heat that air, and they've got these bony scrolls in the nostrils that are covered in mucous membranes that warms the air coming in which is pretty important if you're out there and it's minus 40 and you're walking around all day long. You don't want to be drawing that air, cold air into your lungs. So there's things like that. It also probably aids in the sense of smell. So polar bears are really an olfactory predator. They rely on that sense of smell for finding a lot of their food. Uh, So do grizzly bears, but it seems to be more heightened in polar bears. Again, The eyes on the skull of a polar bear are a little bit moved upwards on the skull. And the interesting thing is there's been some biophysical work that's been done on the skull of polar bears. They're nowhere near as strong as a grizzly bear skull. And the reason for that is you don't need a strong skull if you're just tearing apart blubber and fat seals. Um, You need that strong skull if you're trying to crush roots and things like that masticate a lot of uh, food. Whereas polar bears, they just rip off chunks of seal and swallow them whole. They, they really don't have to do much chewing at all. And I assume the seal is the majority of their diet? Yeah, it is. It's the ring seal and the bearded seal. That's sort of the bread and butter of a polar bear's world. Um, and uh, I always call the ring seal the small meal deal, the bearded seal big meal deal because the ring seals are up to about a maximum of about 70 kilograms which is still pretty big for a mammal but the bearded seals can be over 400 kilos and and so again you know we think about polar bears being carnivorous but in reality they're far more interested in the fat of the seals it's the blubber of seals that makes it possible for polar bears to exist Um, and that's just because like the 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 energetic content of the blubber is so much higher than is the meat of the seal. So when they kill a seal, it's almost like uh, what I call the Oreo cookie effect. They sort of peel it open and then they scrape out that icing and they leave the skin on the top and the muscle down below. They'll eat a bit of the muscle and a bit of the skin, but they really don't want that protein. And there's reasons for that. And one of them is water, despite the fact there's snow everywhere, water's in short supply because In the context of eating a lot of meat, you get a lot of nitrogen in your diet. And it's just like if we eat a big steak dinner, you're going to be thirsty later because you got to get rid of that excess nitrogen. So if a bear eats a lot of meat, it has to then eat a lot of snow. And if it's minus 40 degrees out, that snow is minus 40 degrees. They've got to heat that snow up to plus 38 degrees by the time it gets into their body. So there's a huge energetic cost of eating snow. And when you break down that blubber, it actually releases water. Even though when they eat those big meals, they actually store most of that fat right on themselves. So they don't have to eat often 
But when they do eat, they have this incredibly energy-rich diet. So the example I usually give is that you've got a 500-kilogram male polar bear. Kills a big bearded seal. They can eat 10 to 20% of their body mass in a single meal. So in theory, that bear could take in 100 kilograms of fat. And out of that 100 kilograms of fat, you know, about 90 to 94 kilos is going to go directly into their own fat cells for storage, for use later on. So incredibly high efficiency of absorbing that fat into their own body. So, you know, you might feel bad about eating some, you know, a couple of plates of French fries for a polar bear. These fat rich seals are just absolutely heaven for them. And you don't have to do it often, but you have to do it enough during the time of year when seals are most vulnerable, which is in the spring when they're giving birth to their pups. And then you sack up all that weight and then burn it off over the period of time when you really don't have access to seals. There's two things in that little car, that little bit right there that I would not have thought of. I wouldn't have thought of the size of the seal and I wouldn't have thought about the lack of access to water. They eat a lot of snow. You know, there's, there's no question about that. But again, it's cold. Like, you know, you're probably your mom and dad told you when you were a kid, don't eat that snow. You're going to get cold. You know, as Canadians, we know that. I mean, that's a given, you know, and, and again, it's uh, it's the same thing for mammals as well. They spend a lot of time in the dark. So besides their sense of smell, their vision must be pretty good. I know you hear lots of things about them not being able to see well and stuff, but that can't be right, can it? No, it's uh, they have pretty good eyesight. I mean, it's not the same vision that we have. They have what we call dichromatic vision. We have trichromatic um, so we see a broader color spectrum than they do. And so it's, it's, they, they see the world probably more like your dog does. But my dog has pretty good eyesight. He sees things, you know, he sees another dog way down the block long before he smells it. So, and, and the bears do use their sense of vision to, to find seals, especially in the springtime when the seals start to haul out on the surface of the ice. They're very cued into things that are out there. And, and you, you know, you put down to it, if, if you're standing on an ice floe out on the sea ice, you better bet that that bear is going to come and want to see what you are. Because anything that's out there is probably something that's worth checking out because it could be a seal. I mean, we might look, I think we look like vertical seals to a bear, or it's just worth checking it out because there's nothing else out there. Snow, it's snow and ice, seals, maybe a few birds and other bears, but there's not a lot going on out there. And I've, I've seen it where bears clearly lock onto you from long distance off and just come straight in. So I, I've never thought for a minute that bears are lacking in eyesight. But, you know, it's, it's, it, it is that old saying, you know, a leaf falls in the forest and the eagle sees it, the deer hears it, and the bear smells it. It is that sense of smell that really makes uh, a lot of their lifestyle possible. They, they can detect seals that are buried under the snow, and they actually spend a lot of time hunting ring seals that are in birth layers that are maybe under half a meter of snow, and yet they can smell it, and they can localize where they are and then pounce onto these layers. Because, uh, of course, the seal has a whole exit hole underneath there, and what they want to do is either pin the seal in the layer and then eat it, or at least plug up the hole and then dig around to find out where that seal is. Now, the question with all that is, is does the polar bear consider you a small meal deal or a medium meal deal? I'm a pretty big guy. I, but I'm hoping not as fat as a bearded seal. So, you know, I think energetically they're, 
there, if polar bears wanted to hunt people, they would do a much better job of it than they do. I mean, that's not to say that they don't kill people because they, they do. We've had a couple of people killed in 2018 in the Canadian Arctic. Uh, and across the Arctic, there are people attacked and killed by polar bears every year or every couple of years, for sure. Have you had any, I don't want to call them, have you had any bad experiences while you've been studying them? Because you've obviously come across them a lot. Yeah, I don't publicize that stuff very much. I'm, <laughs> there's the work safety committee, all that stuff. <laughs> goes on. Um, yeah, there's been some exciting times. Um, in reality, though, uh, it's probably the helicopters that are always the most yeah. component of what we do. Because a lot of our research is helicopter-based. We're flying what's, you know, in the low and slow. To put a dart into a bear, you have to be right there. Compared to grizzly bears, polar bears are totally zen to catch. Um, they, grizzly bears are, are just chaos on four legs. Polar bears are just very predictable, very calm about the whole capture process, very cooperative for the most part, extremely robust to capture. Grizzly bears, you come down, and I've done a lot of work on grizzly bears, you come down to catch a grizzly bear, it runs away, and then it decides it's had enough of that, so it starts jumping at the helicopter, and... Then it starts chasing the helicopter, and then they might just decide to lie down on their back and look at you and then jump at you again. Polar bears, they just kind of waddle away, uh, kind of predictable, and are easy to corral, keep into a safe area. Grizzly bears, it's just, it's just, yeah, they're just stressful. You've been doing this over 40 years, so you've seen a lot of changes, and the most common one is climate change. What else is really causing problems for these bears now? Well, I, without doubt, climate change is, is the big concern we have uh, going forward. And so a, a lot of our research here at the University of Alberta is tied to trying to understand what that means for polar bears uh, across the Arctic. Um, and it, it, it's really the same sort of threat that's facing so many species across the world. And it's just habitat loss. That's all it comes down to. We know from the fossil record and the pre-fossil, you know, sort of the um, last end of the last ice age, when the planet warmed again about 10, 11,000 years ago, polar bears didn't become more terrestrial, didn't adapt to living on land. They just disappeared. We have sub-fossil remains of polar bears down around Denmark and southern Sweden. And of course, they're not found there anymore because climate warmed up. That's a natural warming cycle. So climate change is the number one. We have concerns as the Arctic changes and we get species moving into the Arctic from the North Atlantic and North Pacific areas. These new species are going to bring new things with them. That's new diseases, new parasites, and that is an ongoing concern. Polar bears don't have many parasites. They don't, aren't exposed to too many diseases. But of course, when new species come in, new things can come with them. And this just this last January, this month actually, we had an example uh, where a bear died on the north slope of Alaska. It was reported by local people, brought in for a necropsy, which is what we call a wildlife autopsy. And it looks like it died from avian influenza. That's a concern because if polar bears die from avian influenza, one of the consequences of climate change is they spend more time on land and it also means that they're showing up more often, perhaps, in bird colonies, eating birds. 
And polar bears are not fussy about what they put in their mouth. If it's dead and it was living not that long ago, they'll eat it. We had a situation when I worked in Norway, there was a, a dead whale melting out of a glacier. It had been covered by glacier ice for probably five, six, seven hundred years. Uh, and the bears were happily eating this dead whale. And so they'll eat anything they can. And so our concern is if birds are dying more often in the Arctic from avian influenza, uh, are the bears going to go around and scavenge a bunch of dead and dying birds? And then we end up with this knock-on effect from avian influenza. So there's things like that. Polar bears are also highly polluted because of this high fat diet and they're being at the top of the food chain, they accumulate a lot of pollution. Conservatively, I would say there's at least 1,000 and, and likely way more chemicals of human origin in every single polar bear in the Arctic. And some of these are chemicals that we designed and used intentionally. Some of them are just, we don't even know where they're coming from. Probably coming from Southeast Asian industrial establishments. But we don't know. We can barely tell what they are. We just know they're not natural compounds. And so polar bears are quite robust at dealing with some of these pollutants, but we do believe it affects their immune system, which has another concern with new diseases coming in. Uh, we know it affects their hormones, the regulation of body functions. We don't know for sure if it affects their survival and reproduction, but we suspect it may. Those are the main ones. The other things we've got going on is we do hunt polar bears in Canada. For the most part, it is a sustainable harvest and it's based on a population abundance estimate and then uh, a, an allowable quota that's assigned to the communities. But some of those harvests are probably on the edge of or not really sustainable anymore, particularly on, in those populations that we know are in decline. So there are some issues there. And then lastly, as the Arctic changes, industrial activity in the Arctic is, is increasing, and that can be Arctic shipping. And so there is great interest, of course, in, in uh, the Northwest Passage as a route for uh, moving goods across the world, uh, and also the Northeast Passage, which would take goods from Europe to uh, across Siberia and into Asia again. So there's a lot of interest in these, these shipping routes and we're not well set up to deal with things like an oil spill in the Arctic should one happen, for example. Is the population right now in good shape? Yeah, the, the trick about polar bears is there's no one size fits all when it comes to what's happening. So we know that we have very good data on three populations of polar bears that appear to be in decline. And by decline, I'm, I'm talking like up to 50%. So that would be the southern Hudson Bay bears uh, that are centered around Ontario, western Hudson Bay centered in Manitoba, and then the southern Beaufort Sea, which is in uh, the Northwest Territories, Yukon, and Alaska. And so those three are, are not doing well. But we also have some populations that are just doing fine right now. Uh, we just completed some estimates of the polar bears that live in the Davis Strait area off of Labrador, and that population looks like it's pretty much stable. It might have declined just a little bit, but not enough to, to get worried about. It is an area where the sea ice is changing quite quickly, so longer term we'll have concerns about that area. But other populations appear quite stable. So it really depends which population you're looking at. 
and with 19 populations across the Arctic, uh, we are seeing sea ice loss in all of those 19 areas, but it's happening at vastly different rates. So we have concerns that many of these subpopulations will blink out probably by mid-century, but other populations will persist right out to the end of uh, 2100. We don't have really looked any farther than the end of this century, largely because we're reliant on sea ice scientists to tell us what the sea ice is going to look like, and then we can take our understanding of polar bear ecology and put that together with what they think the sea ice will look like. But they don't really look much beyond 2100 because what that ice looks like depends on what our current warming trajectories are going to be. What's your feeling? What's your gut feeling going forward for the bears? You know, there's 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 glimmers of hope all the time, I think, when we look at the issues of uh, how we're going to address climate change. And I think that there's there's reasons for being optimistic. You know, where I live in Edmonton, it's a sunny place. I'm pretty sure if I could scrape together enough money to put solar panels on my roof, I, I could do pretty good here, at least some part of the year. I think we need technology to come online. I'm a firm believer that we have to look at all solutions that are less carbon intensive. And for me, that includes nuclear energy. I, I have a lot of sort of faith in engineering and engineers to find the solutions that we need. We can live a lot smarter than we currently do. I don't think we have to live worse either. And But I think there are going to be real challenges going forward. But wind, solar, nuclear, hydro, uh, geothermal, we're, we're pretty clever as a species. But we do have a time constraint on how clever we're going to be and when we're going to get to these points. And so I am concerned because I think by the time polar bears get into real serious trouble as a species, uh, sort of in the later part of this century, we're going to be dealing with other more challenging issues like sea level rise, mass migration of humans, uh, where are we getting drinking water from, our agricultural systems, all these sorts of things are going to be raising a lot of challenges for humanity. And at that point, the priority might not be, should we send in emergency food to the last 500 or 1,000 polar bears that are still around in this remnant population in the very high Arctic? Uh, is that going to be the priority for humanity at that point? It, it uh, is challenging to see the future. And, you know, at some point it gets to be a bit of science fiction rather than science. So you have to, you know, you have to walk a, a, a thin line there. But I'm cautiously optimistic that the future will work out okay. But it also is predicated on taking strong measures now. And I lectured today to students on campus here and I, I told them, you should be making sure that you're taxing old people like me to pay for the damage that's been done because the solutions cannot be borne only by the future generations and we have to look at putting in place mechanisms now. I mean, I, I'm not in love with paying my taxes, but I do it and I do it willingly because I, I do believe in the social good that comes from it. Thanks, Andrew. You can find more information on Professor DeRoche's writing and work in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's journey into the Arctic, make sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review to let us know what you think. 
Theme music and sound logo produced by John Sanfilippo of Soundwise in Kingston. Closing music is called Ice and Snow by Acreage. I'm Bill Alt. Thank you for joining us on Northern Latitudes.